All right. John's going to kick off our series um, now. So I'll hand it over to you, John. Oh, all right. Um, so as I said before, I've been hyping up Leviticus for about a month now and trying to get you excited by this much unloved and hard done by book and trying to convince you that it's actually a really exciting and relevant book and really rich and really interesting, just like every other part of God's word. Just before we start our long journey into Leviticus, I want you guys to speak freely for a minute. And I mean, you can always speak freely, of course, but I want you to tell me what you really think about Leviticus and what you really think of our decision to preach through Leviticus, 19 sermons. Um, you don't have to worry about hurting my feelings or anything. They won't get hurt. Uh, chuck it on Padlet or stick up your hand to tell me what you think. Are you pretty sure the next 19 sermons in Leviticus will feel like 40 years in the desert? Are you worried that this sermon series will be like a dry read-through of the longest, most boring book you can think of? Or maybe all the announcements have uh, worked and you're actually really excited. I'll give you 30 seconds to think uh, and then hit me. Tell me what you think. All right, that's going to be about 30 seconds. Uh, <laughs> before I read out the ones on Padlet, um, anything in person that people want to say or just uh, communicate to me anonymously? <laughs> Brendan said he feels like 19 is a lot. I, I was... <laughs> yeah, I was, I was originally going for a, a lower number than 19, but then as I read through, I was like, man, this is packed. There, there is a lot in there. Um, we'll, we'll see. Maybe if the, the first few don't go too well, it'll be like a few detailed sermons and then one really big overview at the end. We'll see. 19 is the aim. Anyone else have any thoughts? All right, Sandra, what have we got from the top? Leviticus, rules and boring. Yep, that's, that's probably accurate. That's probably what most people think. Seems repetitive at the start but open to giving it a chance. That's very positive. I know who wrote that. It's a really positive one. Excited to see what God will reveal to us. Awesome. Dry. Uh, that's fair. Uh, 19 sermons might be pretty long. Okay. <laughs> yeah. True. Uh, I'm excited because we don't dig into this book often. Yeah, that's, that's exactly why I did it. So like when you, um, often when I'm doing my own sermon, like after I've kind of done my prep, I'll end up you know, checking out a few other sermons, see what other people think, see if they've got an interesting angle. And when you do that for Leviticus, there's like no one out there. There's like, I found, I didn't search heaps hard, but I found one church in Australia that had done another Leviticus sermon series and they did five. So a bit more like what Pundam was thinking. Um, yeah, so I think it's a, it's a part of God's word that we don't dive into much, but it could be, well, of course it's rich, right? Of course it's rich. And we just need to work hard to find it. So hopefully we'll do the hard work over this, this next few. 19 weeks in the desert, better than 40 years. <laughs> Man, all right. I said my feelings wouldn't get hurt, but maybe they have a little bit. Um, no, all very fair comments. Thanks for being honest. Um, I, I, yeah, I want to acknowledge all those comments. Those are all fair. And uh, 19 weeks, 
five months. Let's give it a crack. Right. Awesome. <laughs> Very positive. I'm, I'm really happy with that. Um, I'm glad you guys are kind of open to giving it a shot because I think um, it, Leviticus is, it'll catch you off guard. It'll be like, I hope it'll be like meeting a new friend. It's like unexpected, but it's uh, fresh and new and we'll see. We'll see what happens. So let me pray about uh, our thoughts there and then we'll, we'll head into our first sermon. Um, Father, we thank you for the book of Leviticus. Um, we thank you for all parts of your word, but even the parts of the word that we might find a bit dry or a bit boring. Uh, we pray for all our reservations. Um, we pray that you'll relieve them uh, through showing us how rich and interesting your word is. Uh, we pray that these next 19 weeks will be um, thought-provoking, that we'll get to know you in a really deep and new way, and that you'll just reveal yourself um, and show us parts of your glory that we haven't seen before. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to um, really love and treasure your word, and we pray that at the end of these 19 weeks, we'll really love and treasure Leviticus as well. Amen. Okay, well, um, if the next 19 sermons are boring, it's, uh, it's not Leviticus that's boring, so you know who to blame. There's only one other variable. Let's get into it. 19-week adventure, and I hope it becomes one of your favourite books of the Bible by the end. So our first step in the adventure, uh, because we're not too familiar with Leviticus in this church, um, and really in the church worldwide, uh, or at least in the Western church, uh, our first step in this adventure is going to begin a little bit before Leviticus. So you probably noticed from the readings, not much of it was from Leviticus. But we need to begin a little bit before Leviticus so that we can understand Leviticus well. So the first five books of the Bible in order are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And they kind of form one connected narrative. And we're going to pick things up in uh, Exodus. I think the next slide, Sam. Uh, most of you are probably familiar with the story of Exodus. So God's people, the Israelites, grow in number in Egypt, um, but they're also enslaved uh, because of their great number. So God sends Moses, his messenger, to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And Pharaoh refuses. Um, and then God sends plagues. And then Pharaoh relents. And the Israelites are allowed to leave. But then Pharaoh changes his mind. And he chases them. And then God parts the sea. Um, and the Israelites cross safely. And then Pharaoh tries to chase them, but the sea collapses on them. Uh, and... They're crushed by the waters, but the Israelites are safe on the other side. And they're now a free people because God himself went before them and he led them out of Egypt. So that's the story of the Exodus. And you probably know that fairly well um, if you've been in church for a while. But actually, that only takes us one third of the way through the book of Exodus. The middle third uh, was all about covenant with God. So if you remember a few weeks ago in Rev Steve's Preacher's Choice Sermons, uh, he actually took us through a couple of key passages. Exodus 19, um, Steve took us through the proposal of a covenant between God and the Israelites. So God put this proposal to the Israelites from Exodus 19. He says, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And Moses speaks them to the Israelites, and the Israelites uh, accept. They say, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. So there's a proposal and there's an acceptance of a covenant in chapter 19. Um, and then in between uh, chapter 19 and 24, we see the kind of stipulations of the covenant, which include the Ten Commandments, importantly. And then Steve's second sermon was chapter 24, where we went through the story of entering the covenant with God. So there were sacrifices, and then by the sprinkling of blood, which we'll get into in Leviticus, uh, sprinkling on the altar and sprinkling on the people, Israel becomes the covenant people of God. And after that, Moses and Aaron and 72 other representatives enter the presence of God. They see his glory and they eat and drink with him. Now, normally, if you approach God, you die. That's the general rule. You come too close to God, you die. But, be, but they weren't destroyed because now they're in covenant with God. It says God did not raise a hand against them. And then after they ate and drank, Moses goes even further up the mountain, even more deeply into God's presence, and stays there for 40 days and 40 nights with God. So this is it, it seems like. God and God's people are together. That's the whole, that's the whole purpose of the exodus from Egypt, right? He saved them out of Egypt, and now he can be with them, and they can be with him. But then why does Exodus end with the words that we read in our Bible reading, uh, which was Exodus 40, 35 to 36? Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. But Moses could not enter the tent because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Why? Why Moses can sit in God's presence for 40 days and 40 nights in chapter 24, but then in Exodus, God's presence comes down and suddenly he can't sit with God. He actually has to stay out because God's presence is there. The most obvious place to look for the answer is between those two chapters. Uh, so what do we find there? The tabernacle, basically. Between 25 and 40, there's the instructions of building the tabernacle. And so the last part of Exodus is all about how to build it and that the Israelites did build it. And roughly, we know it's like a tent and it's basically God's dwelling place. But have you ever wondered why God would live in a tent? Once the covenant is enacted, it's like it's done. God's with them. Moses can see him face to face, but it's not quite the whole story because God has in mind for them a promised land, which is not in the desert at the base of Mount Sinai, but in the land of Canaan. And he also promises to dwell in their midst because he loves them so much. He wants to be with them every step. So what's the solution? If their promised land is far away and God's here, the solution is the tabernacle. It's like a portable temple that God can, so God can be with his people. Uh, so if we go back one slide, Sam, uh, this is basically what the tabernacle looks like. Um, I don't know if you've seen drawings of it before. This is an artist's rendition. Basically, it's like a curtain with like wooden poles and linen strung between them. So it's like you can collapse it and take it around with you. Um, if we look on the next slide, Sam, 
we're going to have a quick look at the structure of the tabernacle just for a couple of minutes uh, because the structure is really important to Leviticus. So uh, if you imagine the borders of this picture are the outside borders of the tabernacle that you saw with the tent, uh, the, the wood and the linen, the uh, outer court is available for all Israelites to enter. And there's the altar of sacrifice and the bronze basin. So they wash themselves clean and they sacrifice animals to God. So that's outside of the tent. Once you step foot into the tent, you're in the holy place and only priests could go there. Uh, and in the holy place, there's the lampstand, the table uh, of the bread of presence and the altar of incense. And we'll go into all of that as we hit Leviticus. And then one more step further in, we're into the holy of holies. Um, if you remember, we touched on it when we were looking at Revelation, how the New Jerusalem was like the Holy of Holies. It had the Ark of the Covenant in it, and it was a cube. It was uh, the same width and length and height. So this is the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. It is also a cube, the same width and length and height, and the only thing in it is the Holy of Holies, the place where God comes and visits uh, man. So that's basically the portable temple so that he can dwell with them while he's traveling because that's what his heart is right to god israel is his treasured possession he desires to be with them in every step of their life so in chapters 25 i think maybe next slide Sam. in chapters 25 to 31 god gives them an instruction on how to build the temple and in chapters 35 to 40 we see the Israelites perform the, the actions exactly as God says. In fact, it seems like the Israelites in these chapters love God as much as he loves them, which is weird to hear. You don't hear that very often in the Bible. The Israelites love God as much as he loves them. All the materials are donated by the people, and they donate so many materials to build this tabernacle that Moses has to tell them to stop. It's like, enough, stop giving. And then not only do they give all these materials and gold and things to create this tabernacle, they also give their time and skill as well. They physically build it themselves. The people are so wholeheartedly in this. God wants to dwell with them, and they want to dwell with God. It's like, it's perfect, right? This is, this is exactly what you would imagine. God rescues them. He loves them. They love him. They dwell together. But then why does Exodus end with Moses being locked out of the temple? Why can't Moses enter God's presence anymore? Well, right in the middle of those um, instructions and then the Israelites following the instructions is another story that you're probably familiar with. It's the story of the golden calf. So chapters 32 to 35. I'm sure you know this story pretty well if you've grown up in church. Uh, Moses is in the presence of God receiving instructions on how to build the tabernacle. So he's up the mountain. But while he's up there, the Israelites get tired of waiting for him. And so they build their own God in the meantime. They make a God out of gold. And Aaron, the high priest, says, this is your God who led you out of Egypt. They had barely entered the covenant and they had broken the first and most important commandment. I am the Lord your God 
who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Do not make an image, but they create an image of a calf. And then they send it before them, and then they worship it like that calf is what took them out of Egypt. So even though God continues in covenant with them, and even though on both sides of this story, it seems like they're really wholeheartedly giving themselves to the covenant, cutting right through the middle of what seems to be a genuine desire to be with God is this like scarring and deep sin. Probably it's the sin that's at the root of all sins, the greater love for something other than God. So just days into the covenant, they're unfaithful to God. In the words of Leviticus, they're unclean or they're unholy. And so Exodus 40 ends with God dwelling in the tabernacle, but with Moses and therefore all of Israel being kept at a distance from him. Because now, if they enter God's presence, I don't think he would eat and drink with them anymore. He would destroy them. Because a holy God can't live with an unholy people. And the Israelites have just proven that they are unholy. So the end of Exodus has an undercurrent of this pretty deep sadness, I think. They're in covenant, but they're sinful. That's a situation that we're kind of familiar with ourselves. The tabernacle's built, but it's not what it's meant to be because their sin taints it. Uh, and next slide, Sam. So we get to Leviticus. Uh, and look how Leviticus starts. It's the first verse. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. God is in the tabernacle and Moses is at a distance. But God still speaks to him. And what he speaks to him are the contents of the book of Leviticus. In the depths of Israel's unfaithfulness, God gives the book of Leviticus, a list of laws and of rituals and of sacrifices. And it could seem that the people of God are just being punished and reprimanded for their sins. If you can't follow the simple laws I gave you, the Ten Commandments, I'm going to have to lay it out step by step for you. You need to do better. But what we'll discover as we read through Leviticus is that at the depths of unfaithfulness, God gives what looks like laws, but is actually grace. And that's how he always is, right? He gives us a way to approach him. The laws aren't onerous tasks to serve a moody God. They're a way that an unclean people can be in his presence. They're a way for an unclean people to be washed clean. In the depths of our unfaithfulness, it's exactly what we need. In the New Testament, we call it grace. And that's why Leviticus is exciting. It's the solution to the problem of God wanting to tabernacle, wanting to dwell with a people that he loves dearly, but 
that are just so unfaithful, so untrustworthy? How could it possibly work? How can laws make someone clean? Our instinct as modern-day Christians is to say, no, of course laws can't make someone clean, right? But look at Numbers. So Numbers is the book that follows Leviticus. Uh, The first verse of Numbers starts in a really similar way. The Lord spoke to Moses, but now in the tent of meeting. It's a slight difference, but what it tells us is something amazing. It tells us that whatever happened in Leviticus was effective. It worked. The sinful, unclean people who at the start of Leviticus couldn't enter the temple and be with the God that loves them so much, by the end of Leviticus, can suddenly come right into the temple again. They can approach God. They can be in his presence because of the grace that's in Leviticus. And that's why it's exciting. Leviticus 1, God speaks to Moses from inside the temple while Moses is outside. Numbers 1, God and Moses meet inside the temple. When we get to the New Covenant era, the world that we live in, we see a really similar pattern play out again. God loves his sinful people so much. It says in John 1, 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word dwelling there is tabernacle. He made his tabernacle among us. So God comes down again to dwell in the tabernacle again. This time the tabernacle is Jesus' body. Comes down to dwell with us. But we run into the same problem. He is so holy. We are so unholy. But somehow Jesus solves it. Something to do with blood. Something to do with sacrifice. Something to do with holiness and purity and life. But how? How does Jesus solve it? If you've been a Christian for a while, sometimes you might feel overwhelmed by your sins. Sins are so shameful, you wouldn't tell anyone. Maybe not even tell your your husband or your wife or your closest friend. Sins that come and you think you beat them back, but after some years they come back and maybe they actually just never left. To be honest, sometimes it's hard to stand up here and preach because I stand up here dealing with those sins as well. Those sins are all over my life. And you might feel, and I might feel, like those sins keep us separate from God, like the Israelites. But the exciting news of Leviticus is that when you're in a covenant with God, he'll wash you clean. Your sins can be taken away when you're in covenant, and your sins will be taken away when you're in covenant. Jesus does something to those deep and ugly sins that are in our life. He overcomes them. And by reading through Leviticus, by understanding the laws and rituals that God gives to make people clean, we'll come to a deeper and richer understanding of what Jesus does, of how Jesus is really worthy to be our God, of how Jesus is the only person who could be our saviour. And of why Jesus is worthy to be loved. So that's why Leviticus is exciting. So I hope by now, if you're still a little bit unsure, I hope you're a little bit more excited at least um, to dive into 18 weeks to see the grace of God 
throughout the Old Testament um, to see why sacrifices can clean us and why Jesus is the sacrifice of all sacrifices. Okay, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word in Leviticus. We thank you that uh, you've made a covenant with us uh, and that we're your people and you love us dearly. Um, we thank you that even though we're deeply sinful, within this covenant you can wash away our sins and you do. And we thank you that we can actually be clean and come into your presence. Uh, please help us to understand the, the riches of what you've done, the richness of what you've done for us. Um, and help us to love you all the more because of it. Help us to, have faith, to be a faithful people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Before we get to the ones on Padlet, any questions in person today? Questions? Questions? Oh, okay, we'll get into the Padlet ones. Uh, first one, a comment, John. Good intro and context. I'm excited for the next 18 weeks. It worked. At least on one person. Sold that person. Thanks for the <laughs> intro, says Anonymous. Good job. All right, first question. Can you explain briefly the significance of Moses smashing the stone tablets and then them being rewritten at the start of Exodus 34? Yeah. Um, that's a... I, I can give you a quick answer. I haven't looked at it in detail. Obviously, this person's read Exodus, which is really great. Um, so the story is uh, all, all kind of goes around the golden calf thing. So um, they enter covenant, which is like chapter 24. Uh, then Moses is on the mountain from chapters 25 to 30-something. Uh, and he's receiving the details of how to build the tabernacle. But then part of the way, or at the end of it, or part of the way through, uh, God says, uh, these people are unfaithful and they're like building an idol now, go down. And Moses goes down and he sees that they've done that. And the tablets that he has, which are all the instructions, which would include the Ten Commandments that God's been telling him, uh, sorry, the covenant instructions, um, he goes down and he sees it and out of his anger, he smashes it on the ground. So he basically breaks the covenant um, because of the sinfulness of the people. Moses is like, done um kind of i guess he's at that point he's kind of representing god's anger or his heart there it's like yeah you've betrayed me the covenant's done but then by the end of the the gold the golden calf story um god reconfirms the covenant basically by saying moses come back up i'm going to write new tablets for you so the the i think the smashing is saying this is what you deserve and then the rewriting is saying, nevertheless, I'm going to find some way for this covenant to work. I'm going to rewrite it and we will still be in covenant because that's what we've promised. They entered the covenant in 24. So there was the blood on the altar and the blood on the people. So they're in covenant now. And by rights, Israel should have been destroyed at that point because they broke covenant. But by love and by grace, uh, God rewrites it and continues with the, the covenant. Um, but we see, I guess, at the end of Exodus, it's a little bit different. They can't come into his presence now because they are sinful. Um, yeah, good question. I'm glad some, that you're reading through Exodus. Normally, like the back half of Exodus, no one reads because it's like the story's over and it's just like a bunch of rules and stuff. Uh, it's a great question. I didn't think there'd be any questions today, actually, because it's like such an intro sermon. Good job to that person. Mm -hmm. um, 
think that's it. Not anything on Zoom. Oh, Steve. Steve, Steve. in person. Steve, mate. Oh, no, no. He gets banned from entering, which is kind of sad. Well, just for people online, the question from Steve was a follow-up question about the question from Pilot about the tablets. Um, and the question was about seeking some clarification about Moses being banned from, entering, from the entering the promised land. Yeah. Was that, is that, are those two things related? Yeah. Uh, yeah, not quite. You, you would think you would, but I guess maybe you would think you would, but maybe at that point he's actually represented God well. Uh, what he gets banned for, banned from entering the promised land for, which is really sad because you think like Moses of all people would, enter the promised land, but God says he won't because he strikes a rock. So God says you're meant to, I think, tap this rock with your staff and water will come out. So this is when the people are like in the desert wandering and they're just like mumbling, where's the water, blah, blah, blah. Um, and God says, you know, tap the rock. But because the people are so annoying to Moses, he strikes it. And because he strikes it, God says, because of that, you're not entering the promised land. Um, so sounds a bit harsh. Yeah, yeah, you feel like you feel like it, right? But um, so that, I think that's in number signs. So I'm getting a bit blurry here. That's in number somewhere. Um, but somewhere in the New Testament, I can't remember where. Um, someone can probably Google it and find out for me. Um, it compares that rock to Jesus. So it's like the 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 rock provides this water, and he's not meant to strike it, right? That that was like. In that sense, that was the wrong representation of that was his own frustration he was showing, not God's frustration to the people. I think anyway, you have to look at that a bit more closely. But yeah, for striking the rock, yeah, maybe I don't know. All right, don't don't like uh, quote me on that. Something around that sort of thing. So yeah, really sad that Moses actually ends up not making it into the promised land because of the people that he's looking after, because the people he's looking after are so annoying. Like, they just whinge and complain all the time. And Moses actually puts up with a lot of it. Um, but then he, yeah, he's excluded from the promised land for, for yeah, because of his people. Tough go. Uh, okay. Yeah. Thanks for that follow-up question, Steve. Yeah, good question, Steve. Um, I think that's it. Anything, nothing on Zoom? All right, great. Okay, okay thanks, thanks John. Guys. You're a legend. All right.